Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. I want to say a uh, special hello to those of you at our other campuses that are joining us. Uh, we're very glad that, uh, that you guys are part of our, our church and good to see you guys at North Raleigh and West Club and Cole Mill and, and right here in the Bay at our, our Briar Creek campus. We are in the second week of a little mini-series called Set. And today, I'm going to invite you to consider something that is, uh, to be totally frank, very difficult and very weighty. And that is the question of whether or not Jesus is the only way that people can find salvation. And if so, if that is the case, which we'll look at what that means for us. Now, I'll tell you up front that there really is hardly anything that Christians believe that is more unpopular than this. This is the sticking point that I have had in conversations about Jesus um, all throughout my life, whether those conversations were taking place in, um, in, in, on a college campus, uh, on airplanes, in coffee shops, in my office, uh, even in the Waffle House. This is what, what comes up when I talk about Jesus. I'd stop one day at the Waffle House to eat what I like to refer to as the cuisine of the gods. And, um, and I, as I was sitting there, I overheard this conversation taking place in the booth that was next to me between this guy and a waitress. And I just happened to overhear uh, in the middle of my, you know, hash browns, I happened to overhear that they were talking about God. And I heard this guy say, you know, the most important question I feel like I could ever answer is who is God and how do I know him? And then he says, he says, but you know what, what, what the problem is? So the problem is there's so many different positions out there and viewpoints on God and how to get to him. He said, how are you supposed to know which one is right? Well, I'm sitting there with my mouth full of hash browns thinking, man. You know, you people are so in luck. I'm a certified expert on God. <laughs> I, I have my master of divinity. I've mastered the divine. What a dumb name for a, a degree title, but I have mastered the divine. I'm here to answer your questions. And seriously, I put my hand up. That's why I thought I'd get in the conversation. I put my hand up because I was gonna, it's just going to set everybody straight. But before I could say anything, the waitress looks back at this guy and she says, yeah, you're right, there are all these different opinions about God, and I don't know which one to believe. She said, but you know who I hate? She says, I hate them born-again types. She says, because the moment they hear you talking about God, she says, all they want to do is tell you why they're right and you're wrong. They don't care anything about you. They don't respect your perspective. All they want to do is shove what they believe down your throat. Then she sees my hand up, and she's like, she's like uh, honey, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, can I have some more tea? I'm, my glass is empty. I had a conversation one time with a girl in an airport terminal. She was uh, on her way up to Harvard University, and at the time I was a student at Campbell, so you can see there was an immediate connection between us. <laughs> and um, I was explaining to her why I'd given my life to Jesus, and she just thought that that was awesome. She said, you know, she said, obviously that gives you real clarity and direction in your life. She says, I really envy that. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, you could, you could have this too. And I remember, you know, at the time, I wasn't married. I was thinking she was really good looking. And, and, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll lead this girl to Christ. We'll get married. You know, she's going to Harvard. Uh, that means that she'll be rich and I can, like, be a painter or a songwriter or an, or, you know, an, an author or something. This is going to be great. So I started explaining to her how she could come to Jesus. And she said, well, yeah. And she said, you know, I just don't know. It's not really for me. And I said, well, sure it is. Jesus is not the, the Savior just of a, you know, a select few Jesus is the only way of salvation. And she looked back at me and she says, you don't really believe that. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I believe it. That's what Jesus said, John 14, 6. And she looked at me again and she said, no, you don't believe that. Like, like she was trying to do some kind of Jedi mind trick on me. You don't really believe that. And I was like, well, yeah, I believe that because that's what Jesus said. 
Of course I do. And she said, no, nobody in our educated society could possibly be arrogant enough to believe that anymore. Our culture has no problem hearing us explain that we have found salvation in Jesus. It has no problem hearing us explaining how much Jesus means to us. It is the idea, nobody ever objects to me doing that. It is the idea that Jesus is the only Savior that they just won't accept. This is the point at which our culture stumbles. One of the reasons that people object is because it seems like it would be unfair for God to declare Jesus as the only way if not everybody has heard about Jesus. It's almost like you got somebody who's never heard about Jesus, and the moment they die, God appears you know, at, the, at their deathbed and screams, Aha! You didn't receive Jesus. And they're like, Jesus who? And God says, no, nah, it's too late now. And he casts their souls into hell. And as they're going down screaming, wait, wait, he's, you know, yells tough cookies or something at him in, in Latin or whatever. Right? And we object to that because it seems arbitrary. It seems arbitrary, almost like a dictator suddenly declared, you know, everybody who is bald is going to prison. And you're like, well, A, you know, how was I supposed to know that being bald was a crime? And B, I didn't choose to be bald. You know, why is it that all of a sudden you're just throwing me into prison? That's arbitrary and meaningless. And that's what the idea that there is salvation only in Jesus seems like to people. So people ask, what about the innocent native in Africa who's never heard about God? How could God hold him accountable for what he didn't even know? Right? I mean, first of all, let me clear something up. There are more Christians per capita in Africa than there are in the United States. All right, so it's more likely the person that lives in Chapel Hill that has never heard about God. So let's, maybe that would be a better one. But but the point, I understand the question, I understand the point. It doesn't seem fair that God would hold somebody accountable for what they don't even know. So because of these objections, most people in America have developed what we could call a functional universalism. And what I mean by that is the idea that they think just about everybody will probably go to heaven except for really, really bad people like Hitler and child molesters and people who don't recycle, you know, those kind of people. Other than those, everybody's going to make it to heaven. And a lot of well-meaning Christians will say, you know, you know, if you obey the good things in your religion, that is, you know, if you, just, if you do the things that are, that are good in your religion, that's kind of like obeying Christ. You're, obe you're obeying the Christ elements in your religion, so maybe God counts that. Or, you know, some of them will think maybe there's like a plan B, you know, like an escape clause or something that God just didn't tell us about. Frankly, a lot of Christians just don't think much about it. They say, well, you know, I know what I believe. I know what I believe, and I won't bother anybody else about what they believe. In the end, that's their business. It's all going to work out. You know, I'm not really worried about it. I want to show you that Paul reaches an entirely different conclusion, and one that has dramatic implications for his life. And I want to walk you through the steps he takes in the book of Romans to get there. Our missions pastor asked me to do this. He said, he said, walk them through the first 10 chapters of Romans to the place up to where Paul said, this is why we go and show them how you got there. So I'm going to do that. I've taught things like this at our church over the last several years. We used to teach this in the gospel class. A good friend of mine wrote a book called Radical, a guy named David Platt, who has actually spoken here at our church. And he's got this, some of this stuff in a chapter. I would, I would commend that chapter to you. Uh, I will tell you this. This has the potential to completely revolutionize your life. Or for some of you, it's going to, or it might, turn you off to Christianity altogether. Probably both are going to happen this weekend. That's what always happens when God's word is clearly preached. All right, and I'm going to tell you this, just to be totally honest with you, this is very difficult for me. Because one, this is so unpopular, and the conclusions we come to are so weighty. They are. But I'm just, honestly, I, I'm trying to take the Bible seriously. 
I would love to be wrong. I really would. But I just don't see any way that I could be. It's just so clear. The, the way that Paul lays out a logical case, he builds it, and he comes up to chapter 10 and then just unloads this on you. So I want to walk you through his logical steps, and I want to invite you just to open your heart and just listen to the Word of God and listen to it with humility and faith and a sense of wonder, a sense of wonder at who God is. All right, Paul's logic in Romans moves in six major steps. Romans 1.18 is where we begin. Romans 1 verse 18, listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them so that they are without excuse. Here is logical step number one. All people have heard about God. All people have heard about God. Paul says that God has shown himself to people and made the truth about himself plain to them. Verse 18, how has he done that? Well, if you go on in the next several verses, Paul goes on to explain that there are two ways that every human being everywhere has been made aware of God. The first is the glory and beauty of creation that teaches us that there is a creator. There is a natural, innate sense of awe and wonder as we look at creation. We look up instinctively and we know that we don't come from nowhere. When you experience love and beauty and family and pain and death, when you look at the beauty of creation, you know there is something more going on than just a biological accident. When I look into the eyes of my wife, I know I'm not just looking at a biological machine. Right? It's even different looking into her face than looking into the face of a pet. Right? Obviously, right? Why is that? Because there's something you know about human beings that they are made differently, right? It's not that she's just more sophisticated or that she's a little bit smarter. There's something in the human spirit that knows it was created for eternity. And Paul says, all creation testifies you, tells you. It's not that nothing times nobody equals everything, right? There's something in that that testifies to the creator. The second thing that Paul says in Romans 1 is that we know innately that there's a sense of right and wrong. Or that there is a right of wrong. When your conscience tells you that something is wrong or you feel wrong for doing something, it is whispering to you that there is a lawgiver to which you're going to have to answer to. Right? I mean, when you go to the airport out here at Raleigh-Durham and you, you know, park your car, when you get out of your car, every three feet there's like a sign or an announcement that you need to keep your parking ticket with you. You know, so you walk three feet and they're like, make sure you keep your parking ticket with you. And you walk down, there's written on the ground there. It's written, no, I mean, everywhere, it's just telling you. I mean, it's like 19 times before you get to the elevator, they told you to keep your parking ticket with you. Now, that's a really strong indication that somebody somewhere is going to ask me for my parking ticket, right? I mean, that, that's logical. Well, when your conscience is telling you this is wrong, you have violated a law, that is a strong indication that there is a lawgiver to whom we are responsible and to whom ultimately we're going to answer. Now, obvious question. You say, well, what about atheists? Well, I'll explain this more in a little bit, but atheism is an acquired belief, not an innate one. That's why every culture in every part of the world ever discovered is religious in some way. People naturally believe in some kind of God to whom they will give an answer. Two of my favorite stories illustrating this. One is from the biography of Helen Keller. Helen Keller, if you recall, was a girl who was born blind. She was born deaf, and she could not speak. I mean, you imagine living and growing up like that? She had no contact at all with the outside world. 
you're probably familiar a little bit with the story. There was a, a lady by the name of Annie Sullivan who wanted to communicate with her, so she ran water over her hand when she was when Helen Keller was a teenager, and then spelled out water to her. And it took several months, but finally she broke through that she was trying to communicate to her. This led to an explosion of language in Helen Keller's teenage years. Well, Annie Sullivan was a very committed believer, and so she wanted to teach Helen Keller about God. And so she went and got a guy, a pastor by the name of Dr. Philip Brooks, to come and explain who God was and who Jesus was to Helen Keller. And as Philip Brooks explained, and Annie Sullivan tried to communicate to her what God was, how would you do that, right? How would you communicate through spelling out letters to somebody who's never seen or heard anything? When she, when she did that, I'll quote from the biography, it says this, listen. As she got across the idea about God, suddenly a light broke out on Miss Keller's face. And she answered back in her way, oh, I know him. I've known him for a long, long time. I just didn't know what to call him. Even in the heart of someone who has no eyes to see nor ears to hear, God has written himself into the human heart. Or here's another one. There was a tribe of, of, of Indians in Ecuador that some missionaries got to a number of years ago. Up until this time, these people had been cannibals. Well, many of them came to Christ, and there was one guy from that tribe who many years later made this statement publicly. Um, it, it, he was speaking here in a Western context. He said, I know that I've heard that a lot of you Westerners think that we were a bunch of savages just running around in the in the wilderness and we did all these things and we ate each other and we, 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 we were cruel to each other because we just didn't know any better. He said, that's not true. We always knew there was some kind of deity and that he was very displeased with what we were doing. All people everywhere know about God. So number two, let me put that verse back up for you. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now watch this next phrase. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see that phrase? By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. The universal response to that revelation was to suppress it. We didn't like it. We resented God's glory and we resisted his right to rule. So instead of giving God glory and the center place and submitting to his right to rule, we made ourselves the center. We gave ourselves glory and we chose to obey our own rules. And so we suppressed the truth about God that was clear in our hearts because we just didn't like it. All right, here's point number two then. All people have rejected God. All people have rejected God. Now listen, this is a little bit deep, okay? I'm going to have to stretch your thinking a little bit, but this kind of took shape in three major forms in the human race, Paul says. This is all in chapters one and chapter two. Here's the first one. Here's the way some people suppress the truth. A, we disobeyed what we knew to be right. We disobeyed what we knew to be right, and I got the references down there for you. None of us, whether religious or not, lives up to our own standards of right and wrong. I mean, even if you're not religious, even if you don't believe in God at all, you've got some sense of what is right and wrong, and you don't live up to it, right? We know we should be loving and generous, but instead we're selfish. We know we should be courageous, but we're often timid and fearful. We know we should be truthful, but we are dishonest. We know we should be passionate, but we are often apathetic about the things we should be passionate about. These are all ways that we resist and kick back against the authority of God in our lives. That's one way. Here's another way. B, we sought other things more than we sought God. We sought other things more than we sought God. The glory and knowledge of the creator of God is not preeminent in our thoughts or in our pursuits. If there is a God, then surely to know him would be life's most important pursuit. But we, as a race, have been more preoccupied with money more preoccupied with the approval of others, with gaining respect, 
with sex, with whatever. More preoccupied with those things than we are with knowing and pleasing God. The approval of men is more important to us than the approval of God. Here's letter C. Here's how some people suppress that truth. Some of us turn to atheism. Some people just decided to reject the idea of a glorious, all-powerful, ruling being altogether. Y'all, here's what's important to understand. That knowledge, that atheism was not arrived at through a logical series of steps. No, that logic, that way of thinking flowed out of a corrupt desire. One of the most important contributions of postmodern philosophy, if you're into stuff like this, one of the most important contributions was to show us that there is no such thing as cold, calculated logic. How we usually see facts is determined more by our prejudices than by the facts themselves. Our hearts color what we see. What we see is determined by what we love. That's what postmodern philosophy taught us. It actually just reminded us of what Romans 1 said all along. Because we hate God's rule, because we hate how he's chosen to run the world, because we resent his glory, our heads are able to be persuaded that he's not even there. Listen to Richard Dawkins, listen to Christopher Hitchens, read Bart Ehrman's books. You'll find all that there. At the core of their objections is, I just don't like God and how he has chosen to rule the universe. Because we hate that, we turn to these other things. This is important to understand. Atheism is one of many fruits that springs out of our hatred of and resistance to God. And that spirit is not just present in atheists. That spirit is the universal response of mankind to God. It is your natural response, whether you are religious or not. So Paul comes to a conclusion in the end of chapter 3. He says this, Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. Not even one. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people resent God's rules. All people resent God's centrality. Some do it within their system of religion. Some do it by rejecting religion altogether. But the universal response of all men everywhere is to reject God. That leads me to number three, logical step number three. All people, Paul says, are guilty before God. Our suppression of the truth, Paul says, deserves the wrath of God. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If our hearts naturally hate God and reject his rule, then we deserve his wrath. I mean, think about it. If you put your fist in God's face and you say, no, God. I do not want you to be God. I do not want your rule, and I don't want you to get glory. You can go to hell. I want to be God. That would deserve the wrath of God, would it not? Well, Paul says that's exactly what we've all done. We have never uttered those words exactly, but how we live says that to God. Choosing to obey your own rules, choosing to live for yourself is a rejection of God's authority and his glory And you and I are guilty of that, all of us, everywhere. And for that, we are rightfully condemned. Guys, sometimes I think we underestimate the wickedness of depravity. We talk about sin like the worst stuff is having sex with people we shouldn't be having sex with or doing drugs or hurting other people. And those things are wrong, yes, but sin at its core is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against the place of God. In our hearts, we resent him. We want to make the rules. We want to get glory. We'd rather, we'd rather murder him and have him out of the way and be God ourselves than submit to him. And then we talk about like God is so wrong in letting bad things happen to the human race. How we're amazed that he would dare punish us. What Paul finds amazing is that God would love and come after those who had despised and rejected him. That's what's amazing. So let me put all these first three points, let me put them together. 
all people are guilty before God because all people have resisted the rule and the glory of God that is made evident in creation. That means, pay attention to this, listen. We are all guilty not because of what we have not heard. We are guilty but because of what we have heard and rejected. That is very important. We are not guilty because of what we have not heard. We are guilty because of what we have heard and rejected. Did you get that? What I'm trying to tell you is that the innocent native in Africa doesn't exist. All have rejected. Question, would it be unfair if God condemned us for not hearing about Jesus? Of course it would. But that's not why we're condemned. We're condemned because we have rejected the rule of God. We're condemned because of what we have heard and turned our back on. So quick question I get sometimes related to this. Like what about babies or the mentally challenged? Are they guilty before God? Well, follow the logic. Why does the wrath of God come upon people? Because of the suppression of the truth. Well, there is no, where there is no knowledge of the truth, there can be no suppression. Paul says that very clearly. Romans 5, 13, look at this. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Sin is not counted where there is no law. So do babies and mentally challenged people understand the law? No. Now, do their hearts, they have hearts that are inclined to sin? Yes. But is their sin counted? According to Romans 5, 13, no. Because sin is not counted where there is no law. Deuteronomy 1, 39 is a great picture of this. Deuteronomy 1, um, the children of Israel about ready to go into the promised land. Right? And God makes this statement to them because they're all, none of them are going to get to go in except for Joshua and Caleb. And God says to them, as for your children, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they'll go in there. Right? Because even though they were part of you, they didn't reject me like you did because they had no law. They had no law. So this does not apply to babies and children. But every adult, Paul concludes, has that law present in his heart, and they have suppressed that truth about God, and they are guilty of cosmic treason. Number four, Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's number four, logical step. God has made a way of salvation for all people. Number four, God has made a way of salvation for all people. There are four key words in those verses. Look at them. Number one, or, or that verse specifically, number verse 24, gift. Gift, God's salvation is not something that we in any way have earned. Underline that word gift. It is a gift, which means it is free for us. Paul says it was a part from the law, which means that, listen, our salvation was not given to us as a reward for how well we kept the law. Then it wouldn't be a gift. It would be something that we'd earned. Now, to say gift does not imply that it's free. A gift is free for the recipient, but a gift costs the giver. In this case, the gift was free for us, but it cost Jesus his life. Gift, that leads us to the second word, redemption. Jesus' gift to us was to pay the price of our sin in our place. You know, I've heard it said like this before. It was as if the rightful wrath of God was pent up like water in a dam, a dam that was the largest thing you've ever seen, five miles wide and ten miles high. And that's the rightful wrath of God for our sin. And as you're standing in front of that dam, suddenly it cracks open and it breaks open and all this torrent of water comes rushing at you. And right before it gets to you, just, just completely overwhelm you and carry you away forever. Right before that, the ground in front of you opens up and swallows every ounce of it. 
When Jesus went to the cross, he stood in our place, and that's exactly what happened. The full fury of the wrath of God was unleashed upon him, and he absorbed every ounce of it in our place. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, turned it over, put it down, and said, it is finished. It is done. All of it. That is my gift. Redemption. Redemption. Leads me to the third word, grace. Grace. You see that? Underline that word in there. Grace means undeserved. Undeserved. When we talk about fair, what we ought to realize is that what is fair is that each of us suffer the penalty for our own sin. That's fair. Grace is by definition undeserved unearned kindness what is amazing is not god's judgment of us what is amazing is god's kindness to us in the cross of jesus that's the last word here believe the way we receive the gift is simply to believe it god has done all the work what we do is we believe that he has done what he said he did which is to accomplish salvation on our behalf i've described it to you before like this it's like waking up in an ambulance you wake up in an ambulance and as you come to, you have no idea how you got there, but the EMT looking over you says, you were in a terrible accident. You were unconscious. You were about to die, but we have got you. We have saved you. We are resuscitating you. We have taken care of your wounds. All you got to do is lie there, and I'll save you. Right? What happens in salvation is you suddenly wake up to the fact that God says he's already saved you. And by believing in that, by consenting to that, by just remaining in the ambulance, God saves you. Gift, redemption, grace, believe. Salvation is a gift that Jesus offers in his love to all who will believe and receive it. His grace is undeserved, unearned for any of us and wholly apart from anything we could have done for ourselves. Number five, people must hear the gospel to believe and be saved. Number five, people must hear the gospel to believe and be saved. We can only believe on Jesus when we've heard that message. That's what Paul says. Look at Romans 10. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching to them? Because faith, you see, comes through hearing. And hearing comes through the word of God. You say, well, what if somebody never heard about Jesus but responds to how they see him in creation or in their conscience? Like, remember those ways you showed us at the beginning that we could see God? What if somebody responds to God that way? Well, a couple things. First of all, remember, Paul's already showed you that all people responded to those things without exception, with rejection. All people have rejected the kind of knowledge that God gave them. Secondly, look, verse 17 says the only way for faith to grow up in the heart is how? Faith comes from what? Hearing. That's right. And where's hearing come from? The Word of God. You see, the Word of God has a strange life-giving power because, yes, it is revelation of God, but it also has in it the power to give you the ability to believe. This is a little mystical and a little weird, but this is what the Bible teaches about itself. The Bible, when it is preached, gives you not only instructions about how to be saved, it gives you the ears to hear it and the ability to believe it. The way I've described it to you before is, is like this. Imagine if you were, like, clinically insane or you knew somebody that was insane. They thought they were a bird. They felt like a fly. And so you encounter them on top of a 35-story building. And they're standing on the edge of that building. And they're about to jump because they think they can fly. Now, you're right behind them. You're their friend. And you're like, hey, man, don't, don't do that. You can't fly. You're not a bird. Come back down with me to safety. And you offer them a choice. 100 out of 100 times, what are they going to choose? They're going to jump, right? Because they're insane. It's just what they think. And so they're going to freely choose to jump. 
Now, what if I had the ability, what if you had the ability that you had like a, a needle with some kind of like serum in it that would restore their sanity to them? So you stuck it in their back and you put some kind of antidote in them, all of a sudden they return to their right mind. And then you offer them the same choice. Hey, you can jump or you can walk back down here with me to safety. Same free choice, right? 100 out of 100 times, what do they choose? They choose not to jump, they choose to come to safety because you have not only given them instructions about how to be saved, you've given them the ability to obey it. What the Bible teaches is that not only does God tell us how to be saved in the gospel, the word of God itself grants the faith that is necessary to believe it. You say, well, I don't know, it sort of makes sense, but I still think somebody could just look around and respond to God and do what's right and God would count that. Well, again, no offense, I appreciate your opinions, but they don't make a hill of beans difference to me or to you or anybody else, okay? These are not my opinions I'm trying to show you. I'm just trying to walk you through how the Bible lays this out. Now, I, I will tell you this, okay? You're like, well, maybe somebody could just respond to what's going on and create. The Bible actually tells you a story of somebody just like that and shows you exactly what God's prescription for them was. It's in Acts chapter 10. You may not have time to turn your Bible there, but let me walk you through the story, and I'll Put some of it here on the screen, or it's already there. All right. There was a, a certain man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He gave generously, gave of his money to the people, and he prayed to God always. This is a good guy, right? I mean, he prays, he's religious, he's kind to people, he gives money. Well, about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when Cornelius observed the angel, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And so the angel says to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. So send for Peter. He'll tell you what you must do. Now, interestingly, on the other side of the city, Peter's having his own vision. And God is revealing to him in one of the strangest dreams in the Bible, which I don't have time to get into, that he's supposed to go talk to Cornelius. And so Peter's kind of walking around like, I'm not really sure what's going on. Shows up at Cornelius' house. Cornelius opens the door, there stands Peter, maybe it's the other way around, yeah, Peter opens the door, there stands Cornelius, and, uh, and, and, and they're like, you know, sort of awkward there for a minute, <laughs> it's like, I had a dream, I had a dream too, um, in my dream, you're supposed to tell me about Jesus, um, well, in my dream, I'm supposed to tell you that, so let's, let's go, and so Peter takes Cornelius and all of his soldiers, all this Italian regiment, back into the back, and he starts to explain to him the gospel, and he gets to the part of the gospel, Acts 10:43. watch, to Jesus, all the prophets give witness that everyone who believes in him, watch, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now why? You said, what's significant about that? Notice, Peter does not say, Cornelius, God wanted me to tell you that he's noticed how good you are, how you're obeying all the Christ elements in your religion, and I'm here to announce to you that you're already saved. Right? Now we're just going to call you a Christian because you've been that all along. No, he says you must believe in Jesus and then you will receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. In fact, in the next chapter, when Peter recounts this story to the other apostles, this is how he does it. Acts 11, verse 13. Cornelius told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, watch, send for Peter who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Will be saved, not to announce to you that you've already been saved. To be saved, Cornelius had to hear the message and to hear the message, Peter had to go preach to him. Listen, write this down. In the Bible, the gospel never goes forward except through a human instrument. That's heavy. 
in the Bible, the gospel never goes forward except through a human instrument. You search the book of Acts, you will not find one case where that happens, where it goes forward apart from a human instrument. You're like, well, how do you know God, you know, wasn't doing some stuff he doesn't tell us about? Could God have done some stuff he just, you know, never really told us about in Acts? I guess he could have. But the point remains that there is not one hint in Scripture that God works outside of his human instruments in the church. Not one hint. In fact, the angel that God sent to Cornelius' house didn't even explain the gospel himself. I mean, he's already there. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't the angel say, hey, Nicolay didn't explain this to you. No, the angel sends it to Peter so Peter can do it. God always uses human instruments. There's not one case in Scripture of the gospel going forward apart from a human instrument. So that's why Paul says, how can they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless somebody is sent to preach to them? Paul doesn't leave this door open for this happening any other way except through us going and preaching the gospel to them. Listen, do you ever think that maybe, just maybe, that is why God is stirring up some of you at this moment precisely because he is working in somebody like Cornelius over there? Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why things are going on in your heart. Maybe God is moving in you because he's got somebody in Central Asia or Southeast Asia that he is doing the Cornelius thing with, and you're the one who's going to preach to them. I've experienced that more times in my life than I can tell you. I experienced it last night on the plane sitting next to somebody. After she unloads her, her, what's going on in her, her life to me, I was like, well, I've got to just go ahead and play the, tell you the dirty streak. I'm a pastor, right? And this is not an accident, and you know that. And she got this look in her eyes like, you know, I can't believe I just said all these things to you, right? And I'm like, listen, God is, God, God is doing something in your heart, and I'm here to help you see what that is. I've experienced that when I was overseas, I've told you some of the stories. One, one afternoon, I had a, the strangest phone call to receive when I got there. It was a guy saying, I need to talk to you. You've never met me before, but I need to talk to you now. And as I went to meet with him, he begins to tell me about this dream that he's had. And in his dream, he said, he said, he said I'm 32 years old. I've always been a Muslim. I have no desire to not be a Muslim. He said, I'm walking through this field. He goes, and in this field, all I can see in front of me, behind me, to the right and to the left he says, there's just an emptiness. I'm just walking. He said, it's, you know, it's interesting because that's how I feel about my life and that's how I feel about God. I just feel separated from God and I want to know him and I feel like I need direction in my life. He said, I walked for what seemed like days. He says, then all of a sudden behind me, somebody called my name. He goes, they weren't there before. He said, I looked. He said, I turned around and there was this man dressed in this white robe that just shone like the sun in his face. I couldn't even look at his face. It was so bright. He looks at me and he calls my name and he reaches inside of his robe and he pulls out a copy of the gospel and he puts it in my hands and said, this is the only thing that will get you out of this field. He goes, I've rejected it because I couldn't. I was a Muslim. He said, when I did that, I knew that I'd made this terrible mistake. He said, the next night I went to sleep and I had the same dream. I walked again for what seemed like days and then he came again and he said, this is the only thing that will get you out of this field. And he held it out to me and he said, again, I rejected it. He said, third night, I didn't want to go to bed. He said, when I went to bed, there he was. He goes, this time there was no walking or searching. There was just me and him in this field. And he said, this is the last time I will tell you this is the only thing that can get you out of the field. He said, and I watched my hands almost involuntarily reach up and take this copy of the gospel, and I took it in. He said, that was a month ago, and I'm scared out of my mind, but I know somebody who tells me that you know the gospel. Can you explain to me what this is all about? Yes, I can. I was like, I grew up really conservative Southern Baptist. We didn't believe in stuff like this, but you were so in luck because just a second ago, God gave me the gift of dream interpretation as my spiritual gift. 
And I sat there for two hours and walked him through what the gospel says. And I remember, I'll never forget this, this is over in Southeast Asia. I remember getting to the part about where God died on the cross. I remember him asking, you mean to tell me that the creator, Allah the creator, died on a cross in nakedness and shame for me? And I said, that's what the Bible teaches. I remember these tears welled up in his eyes. And he began to say something you've heard, Allahu Akbar, which is the way they say God is the greatest. It's like a nationalistic chant. And he was saying that now in reference to what God had accomplished for him on the cross. Do you understand that God might be doing that in somebody here because he's doing that in somebody there? Do you understand that there is no other way that people are saved except through the preaching of the gospel by the church? Maybe that's happening right now. Maybe God's going to send you there. That's what the whole point is. Look at it. Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching to them? And how can they preach unless we are sent? The idea that God will be out there preaching the gospel himself to lost nations and he'll get it done on his own so we can go about our lives playing with our toys and messing around in church is a convenient fiction. The inconvenient truth is that if people in the world are to hear the gospel, we, the church, are the only ones who can preach it to them. Which leads me to lastly to number six. The task is urgent. We're the only ones. We're the only means of their hearing. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. Listen to me. At most, one-third of the people on earth claim to be Christians. One-third. That's just the ones that claim to be Christians. That means that there are at least 4.5 billion lost people on the planet. The Joshua Project, which is a missions research company, estimates that about half of those, about half of that 4.5 billion people that we know are lost, about half of those, listen, have little to no access to the gospel. Little, no access. These are people just like you. Right? What I mean by that is, is they hurt like you hurt. They're lonely like you get lonely. For them to grow up without God is every bit the tragedy it would be for you. For them to enter into eternity without God is every bit the tragedy it would be for you. It's like a phrase I use, the only thing I quote from Joseph Stalin, okay, only thing. The death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is just a statistic. That's all it is. This is not a statistic. This is 2.25 billion people with little to no access to the gospel at all, and they cannot hear and they cannot call on the one they've never heard about. 6,645 unreached people groups, which is a group of 10,000 people or more that are united by a common language with no gospel witness. Do you hear that? There's no other way they'll hear. There's no plan B. When God transformed my life, when he called me, it was through this truth right here. This is it. I'd gone to school to go into law. Nothing wrong with that. I've told you that. I mean, God will lead many of you into that, and there's no problem with that. But I was going there, and I was reading the book of Romans. And I'd gotten up one morning to spend some time in it. It was a day that I had a three-hour class, and it was one of those classes where you could show up for the last 30 minutes and be fine. So I was like, well, I'll just you know, read the Bible for the first two hours and then show up. So I was reading my Bible, and I, I got to this part in Romans 2, and it just made sense to me. The idea that there were that many people who never heard about Jesus radically reoriented my life because it didn't seem to make much sense, me sitting around waiting on God to tell me something that he'd already told me he wanted to do. 
I remember when, when, when the weight of that many people who'd never heard about Jesus, when it finally set in on my soul that Friday morning, I knew I had three choices. I knew one, listen, these are serious. I knew I could deny it. It's what we call liberalism. You start denying different parts of Christianity because you don't like them because you're not comfortable with them. And the path to liberalism is wide. And there's a lot of people who go down it because I would just rather change what the Bible says than change myself to the Bible. It was denying it. Number two was ignoring it. I know I could just ignore it and go on playing with my Christian CDs and, you know, my God club and all that kind of stuff and ignore it like most of the church seemed to be doing. The third thing I knew I could do is I could embrace it. And I said, God, here am I. Here, I don't know what I can do, God, but send me. Send me. I'll embrace this with my life. I know, y'all, I know I can't do everything. Please understand, I don't walk around with the weight of the world on my shoulders like it's up to me to save them. That's a burden I could never sustain. In fact, one of the most comforting scenes to me is after Jesus laid the Great Commission on the apostles going all the world and preach the gospel, you're the only way they're ever going to hear about it. You know what the first thing he had him do was? This is very important. What's the first thing he had him do? Nothing. He's like, okay, there's your assignment. Now go do nothing. I want you to go sit in an upper room and wait because I'm going to come. And the point was, I'm the only one who can accomplish this. I'm the only one. So what your role is, is not to run out of this place like it's all up to you. Your role is, watch, to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can use you to bring salvation to the nations. And he is ready and willing to do that, but you've got to offer yourself because there's no plan B. There is no other way that the Holy Spirit works in the world except through his church. Each of us have to offer ourselves to God to be used for that purpose. Summit, we can't go on about our lives as if this were not true. We are the only thing God uses to take the gospel. I've heard it said that if you lined up all of the people in the world who are unreached in a single file line, they would circle the earth 25 times. Can you imagine a line of people as long as the earth? 25 people wide, trampling hopelessly to destruction. Here's my question. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really believe it? Does how you live and how you give show that you believe the gospel? I would say it's impossible to really understand what you've been rescued from. It's impossible to understand that and not turn to give your life for those who are in the same place that you were. The way I've proven that to you is I've told you that if you were walking around downtown and you saw somebody in the railroad tracks and they were hopeless and they were crippled and they were going to get run over by a train, you heard a train coming. There's not a single person in this room, not one, who would walk past that person and say, well, let them die. It's not my responsibility. Not one. It's just normal compassion, right? So when I can tell you that 2.245 billion people have never heard the gospel and are headed to an eternity that is much more tragic and devastating than a child being run over by a railroad, by a train. That tells me that you just don't believe it. Because normal compassion would move you to a radical reorientation of your life. Do you believe the gospel? If you are not actively engaged in the mission it's because you either don't understand or don't really believe what the gospel is. You know, why is it that you were saved? Why? 
There's nothing about you that made you better, is there? God in his grace saved you. You can't understand that and not be moved for people all over the world who are no worse than you, who are made in the image of God just like you, who've never heard about Jesus. This is what changes your life. This is it. If this is true, we don't have time to play games. We don't have time to play church. We don't have time to spend our lives collecting toys. College student, what are you majoring in? You thought about how your life ought to look in light of global priorities. I'm not saying everybody goes into seminary and goes to be a missionary. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, have you thought about your life in light of global priorities and asking God how he can use your talents, what I said last week, and leverage those for the kingdom of God? Some of you that are headed toward retirement, what are you thinking about doing in your retirement? I met an older guy recently who, 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 who just had a lot of money. He was talking to me about retiring and looking forward to it where he could take up his hobby where he's going around the world to collect some rare thing that he wanted to collect. And I'm looking at him like, really? Really? That's how you want to spend the last 15 years of your life before you meet Jesus? You want to run around the world collecting toys? You got this many people that have never heard about Jesus and you want to collect toys? Now, let me be really, let me try to clear up a couple of things I know you might be thinking. Some of you are like, well, J.D., you don't sound very tolerant. I don't want to be misunderstood, okay? Please hear me out on this one. I just don't really have time for tolerance. What we need is not tolerance. What we need is grace-filled witness to the gospel. Now, I believe in liberty. And by liberty, I mean that I believe that you have the right to disagree with me, and I believe that you ought to have the right to disagree with me and to state that publicly, and I do not think that I should be giving any favor position in our culture to say what I believe as opposed to what you believe. I would believe in religious liberty for you to the death. I would believe freedom of speech to you, and I would give my life to preserve your right to disagree with me. I believe in liberty, but if by tolerance you mean the idea that I sit quietly and just keep my mouth shut, I don't have time for that, Right? Because this is an hour that doesn't need people who just don't have the backbone to tell other people what God says. But what this hour needs is people in humility and grace will plead with people and say, this is what the Bible we read teaches, and we didn't write it. This is, we're simply witnesses to it. Now, some of you say, well, is this what the angry pit preacher believes? No. It's not, because people who get this, listen, aren't really harsh and arrogant. Because when you get this, you have a deep sense of the love of God. You have a deep sense of what he saved you from, and that gives your life a humility and a brokenness, and you show it by self-giving sacrifice. You take care of the poor. You take care of the prisoner and the orphan. That's why we do what we do here at this church. Our way of making Christ known is not to preach angry sermons and condemn everybody. It's to love them and to serve them and to show them what love and generosity of the cross looks like by serving them, by taking care of the widow and the orphan and meeting their needs. There's no way to be saved apart from people hearing about Jesus. And we, the church, are the only way they can hear about him. So what are you going to do about this? You're going to deny it? You feel yourself sliding down that path? And I know some of you do. Some of you are ready to walk away from this altogether. I'm telling you, that path is wide. Don't go down it. Don't go down it. You can deny it. Number two, you can ignore it, put your head back in the sand like most believers who where they say they believe this, but have never really embraced it with their life. They just ignore it. They may say they believe it, but they live like it's not true. Or three, you can embrace it and yield your life to the implications of it. Later in our services, you're going to see a video of a couple in our church who have embraced this. Again, what God has called them to is not what he's called you to. Some of you are going to call to stay right here just like me. But this is a couple 
grew up right here in Durham County, actually way up north in, in Durham County, Person County, I think, actually. They hadn't gone to college. They'd never been on a plane. And the implications of this is what drove them to radically rethink their life. And I'm just saying you ought to, you ought to consider it. You ought, to, you ought to get your mind around it. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, with me. God, our hope is not in our obedience. Our hope is in the gospel. But we who have been saved, God, I want to lead a church that offers themselves their money, their time, their resources to seeing this gospel go forward. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. God, from this church, send labors into your harvest. I pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.